0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff.
1: Hey sports fans, welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast. We love our history, but we love our sports, too. And in this episode, we look at what's in a nickname. I think we can all discern where the nicknames of the most popular programs around the country come from. The Yankees, the 49ers, the Oilers, the 76ers. Most of these are pretty easy to figure out, right? Well, there's one nickname that has a cloud of mystery around it with no distinct answer. But today, we're going to talk about the most credible historical reason behind one of the most iconic sports nicknames, the Hoosiers. Find out its origins, some mysteries that surround it, and the twists that go along with it on this episode of The Missing Chapter.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Missing Chapter podcast. I'm Phil Horinder here with Phil Schaff. Phil, it is March in Upstate New York. We just came out of a great February break. Uh, the batteries are recharged. We're sitting down to a nice pot of dark chocolate raspberry truffle from the Utica Coffee Roasting Company. Um, I think we've had this in the past. Yeah, I think we we mentioned. A year ago, I think yeah, yeah, we mentioned how it really does almost taste like a dessert. Yeah. And when they say dark chocolate and then the raspberry and the truffle, you actually taste all three of those different flavors and 100%. it works. It's it's one of their better, their better flavors for sure. Now, a couple of things. As teachers, you know, professionally, Phil, as we enter into March, we're thinking professional development, we're thinking getting ready, you know, for the end of the year, but we're also looking ahead to next year. And I know some of our listeners are teachers, and we always, you know, want to offer out the, the opportunity to work with us directly if you're interested in doing any professional development or your district has the money to be doing professional development, um, certainly feel free, reach out to us either by email, through social media. And Phil and I would be happy to uh, to kind of develop and, and design a, a webinar that would be good for you. And we'd love to be able to work with as many people around the country and around the world as possible.
1: And now that some of the COVID restrictions throughout the United States is being exactly um, you know lessened and, and uh, released, well, we can actually you know, meet you somewhere, and we right. could go to your schools if we need to. And and don't forget, this isn't just a, a, about um, you know teaching on how to create your own podcast, but it's also the, the co-teaching model, right? Uh, which we've talked about a million times on, on this uh, podcast. Is is, I mean, it's it's benefited both of us in so many different ways in ways that we never really anticipated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we could we could really provide a lot of resources and actually maybe share some of the mistakes we've made um, in the inception of this. That you can help you out later on, so you don't have to make the same mistakes. Absolutely, Phil. And then the other thing, obviously, we enter
0: into March. It's a long month. It tends to be cold where we are. We're thinking college basketball. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I really kind of lean on to get me through this this month is March Madness, college uh, basketball, the pinnacle, you know, in in college sports. And you know, after hearing your introduction, I think it ties in well. This this, this uh, story is coming about at a good time in the school year.
1: Yeah, and, and this is something, obviously, it hits home for me because, I you know, we have such a, a basketball line in our family. But it was one of those things where, I mean, you just grew up hearing Hoosiers. You saw right. the movie, you know, and, and as anybody who's a basketball fan or even a sports fan in general, maybe not specifically basketball, you've heard the name Hoosier before. Mm-hmm. And I guess it was one of those things you just never stopped to think, the heck does that mean? You know right. what I mean? So uh, the more I got thinking about that and the more research I got into it, there's there's like this this cloud of mystery around it. But I think as we as we dive deep into this, um, we we obviously get the, I think the most credible source, and it makes the most sense. Right, and so, you're you're talking too about really, I mean, the team
0: that historically has has identified and been college basketball. True, the Hoosiers. Yeah. You mentioned the movie, but you think Bobby Knight. You think of the the iconic images of of Midwestern, you know. Uh, students playing basketball. I think you your mind should immediately go to the Indiana Hoosiers. Larry Bird, you know, the, the, right. the greats that came out of Indiana. Right. Yeah. And maybe a top ten somewhere down the road of sports movies. Ooh. If we really one. want to start some controversy and some dialogue and some debate. <laughs> you just mentioned, you know, Hoosiers. Um I think we could we could definitely tap into some people's frustrations at home by
1: giving out <laughs> our lists for top top movies of sports. I think we're onto something yeah. there, yeah. Um, so let's, all right, so let's, let's talk about this. So Indian a nickname, obviously very distinctive, very well known, as we mentioned, and yes, its source is very, very mysterious, but let's go into some of the sources. Let's try to figure out what ones are the most credible. And maybe the one that's most convincing Because I, I have my personal opinion about this and maybe I can convince some of the people, uh, listening at home, uh, the same way. So let's talk 19th century. Hoosier was a common synonym in the South for a country bumpkin. Um, there's no record of how the term came to be used as slang or what it originally meant. But we we do know that it had some sort of, you know, country bumpkin connotation. Uh, The earliest Indiana settlers um, brought this word with them from the Appalachian region, but there aren't really any documents telling us where it came from specifically. So there's still some mystery around it, but mid 19th century, Indiana citizens had transformed this label of being kind of like an uneducated country bumpkin to almost a badge of pride and identity. Kentuckians, actually, were uh, the first to joke that the term came from the practice of isolated Indiana farmers yelling, who's here, to approaching strangers. Um, That's crazy. I would never have thought that. (laughs) Never, never in a million years. As I'm reading some of these uh, documents, it it was hard for me to read through this without laughing. Um, But shout out to my sister who lives in Kentucky and who doesn't speak like that, Mm -hmm. but you can actually, uh, you know, impersonate some of the Kentuckians who's here to, to really get that that and to hear that, and to hear
0: that idea of where that came from i also think in
1: the back of my mind like okay that makes sense all right like, you exactly. know what i mean all right now how about this one so if that if that makes you chuckle there was a story about a bar fight after which somebody wondered whose ear was left lying on the floor oh no now as i told you this is kind of a cloud of mystery that one is a little bit of a stretch because I, I've only found maybe one or two documents that, that I've even mentioned that in passing, but right. none that are actually corroborating. And for that to manifest itself into being the mascot <laughs> right.
0: for Indiana University, whose ear is left lying right. on the bar uh, exactly. floor after a brawl, that would be interesting too.
1: Now, another story Hoosiers themselves, so they try to put a more respectable spin on, on their name rather than being a country bumpkin, sometimes told about a man um, with that surname who hired people from Indiana to work outside the state. Uh, so Indians were, were thus associated with a certain Mr. Hoosier. Uh, hmm. Once again, as awesome, as glamorous as that might sound, to have someone to treat workers so nice, well, there is no evidence really to support the existence of this figure. And I, I looked everywhere for that. I, I saw it in one document. I thought I'd mention it. But there's real no corroborating evidence for that okay. either. Uh, besides, one of the most compelling stories of someone named Hoosier already existed um, prior to that that story, okay? Okay, historians of early American religion have long acknowledged the importance of a man, ready, by the name of Harry Hoosier, a Methodist preacher famous for his eloquence. Some call him the greatest Christian order of all time. Those who heard Hoosier preach found him hard to forget. Uh, here's an example. Dr. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence, remind, remind you, uh, is... Acknowledged that, quote, making allowances for his illiteracy, uh, he was the greatest order in America. Outside a narrow circle of scholars, um, this guy is by far, everybody seems like, hey, we need to flock wherever this guy's going. People are flocking to hear this guy speak. And just general
0: curiosity, because it's a podcast and we don't have this in front of us. How was his last name spelled?
1: That is a great question. Oh no, am I jumping the gun here? <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but okay. you're on all the right. right track. So keep that in the back of your head. Um, all right, so really hard to find historic documents and biographies. However, there is plenty of evidence from the Methodist Church themselves to not only piece together his his pretty remarkable career, but the history of the word Hoosier too. Um, so let's let's kind of backtrack. There's some events that that take place in England that lead Harry Hoosier to the um, the world-renowned speech that he is really a part of. So there was a spiritual revolution in, in a lot of the poor communities in England. John Wesley, for those of you at home uh, who recognize that name, he's, he sought to reform the Anglican Church. And as a result, he founded what came to be called Methodism, or the Method uh, excuse me Methodist Church. So Wesley took the Christian mes- message to those who were on the fence of established religion. He delivered really passionate sermons. He emphasized a personal rather than like institutional expression of faith. And Wesley, world-renowned Christian speaker, Wesley worked outside of the regular channels of, of, you know, religious authority, and he recruited a lot of lay people to assist him with evangelism. So he required these preachers to travel pretty widely, actually, in order to preach to the unchurched, okay? So some historians would argue that in America, the system was even more important than it was in England because the vast areas of, of unsettled land had really unchurched people, but ordained and educated clergy were pretty short supply. So he's looking for anybody with any sense of of, um, being a good public speaker. Okay, All right, so the Methodists took religion to the people by organizing revival meetings, okay? Uh, Those who heard the call to preach at these revivals had to be prepared for a hard life on the road without the comforts of uh, a family or a permanent home. So you really had to kind of fit the bill, like, hey, you gotta be willing to travel and it's gonna be hard. Um, there was almost a twofold benefit from these revival meetings. Number one, people shared their experiences with each other, creating almost like a team embodied group, um, and everyone was included—black and white, both free and slaves. This is a big piece of this. Black Americans were attracted to the informal and spontaneous nature of the Methodist meetings, where they were permitted to participate alongside whites. Okay, uh, they were also inspired by the strong stand the Methodist leadership took against slavery, following the guidance of Wesley himself. The Methodist message of personal holiness cut across racial, social, economic lines. And a few of the most gifted um, black preachers who joined the movement were encouraged to become preachers themselves. Okay. Harry Hoosier is one of the first and possibly the best of this group because he was black himself. Here we go. He was illiterate. So the spelling of his name, Phil, like you mentioned, varies in the sources. Okay. Some of it isn't spelled like the Hoosier we know today H mm-hmm. O O S I E R. Um, it's always phonetically said "hoosier," but because he was illiterate, sometimes it was spelled H O S I E R. Sometimes it was spelled like we know it today. Sometimes it was spelled H excuse me H O S H U R. All the spellings of his name by his contemporaries, though, produced the same phonetic effect, um, and that's why you know the way he pronounced his name is similar to the way "hoosier" is pronounced today. And I have to imagine, Phil, that for this time period and for the uh, a scenario like your you know
0: laying out for us that was common right exactly right I mean yeah. especially in, in in groups where you know education was not the norm exactly and, and people were, were illiterate and you know the signing of documents and you know it's things have definitely changed by 2022 so right. that yeah. makes sense I mean it, it's not something you look at as part of this story and say well it it disproves what we're talking about no it in the context of history
1: yes I I kind of would expect it. Yeah, absolutely correct. So, and I think one of the things that that the more I read into this, uh, blew my mind about this is the fact that you have a person, uh, you know, coming from England. There's all these revival Englands that it it eventually makes its way to America and to a lot of the unsettled areas of America. Um, And then, you know, the the relationships between white and black. You now have a black person coming forward and saying, not only am I going to be accepted by a lot of these people, I'm actually going to be one of the one of the best, if not the best right. of all time. Right. You know, it, it's a, it's really, I mean, talk about a trailblazer. This guy is, is yeah. phenomenal. Um, so, all right. Nevertheless, the, the evidence for the connection between his name and, and he is, Indiana's nickname is circumstantial, which I think is why some people leave, you know, there's, there's room for skepticism there. But if you compare it to all the other explanations, this theory not only makes a better story, but also has a better historic and credible power, in my opinion. Okay. Um, that I think some of the others kind of lack. So surely it's more than coincidence that the evolution of this term followed the same path that the early Indiana settlers took in, from the Appalachian frontier. Hoosier's birthday is usually given as 1750, but there's really no documentation about either of his parents or his early years. Um, no one really knows where or how Harry Hoosier obtained his last name, so that's still up in the air, uh, but at, at some point after he was free, his speaking skills really, really got the attention of the Methodist Church specifically. Okay. Now, a key figure to Hoosier's story, though, is a man by the name of Francis Asbury, uh, one of those who answered Wesley's call uh, for workers to spread the movement in America. So at his side was the first African-American to obtain national prestigious religious figure, of course, Harry Hoosier. Asbury mentions uh, Hoosier first in his journal in an entry dated June twenty eighth, 1780. Though It has been suggested that they met as early as 1775. So we now have very corroborated historic evidence for this guy. Um, at first, Hoosier accompanied um, excuse me, accompanied Asbury as a traveling companion, and his servant. But Hoosier really pretty soon after proved himself as a worthy colleague. Asbury preached to white people while Hoosier preached uh, to slaves. Hoosier would substitute for Asbury when he was sick. And in some cases, Hoosier was asked even to preach immediately after Asbury finished his own sermon. So I, I don't know if you would take that as as a compliment or not, but if I'm Asbury and, and some people are like, hey, after you're done, can we hear that guy? I think really, especially for that time period, asking for you know someone specifically after you've already preached, it's like, all right, thanks for warming us up. We want to hear the real guy that we're yeah. here for, yeah. um, especially because he's he's uh, uh, an African-American. So that that's huge. Okay. At Falls Church, Virginia, Asbury wrote, quote, uh, we preached at the chapel. Afterwards, Harry, a black man, spoke on the barren fig tree. The circumstance was new, and the white people looked on with attention. This was the first opportunity for his audience to hear a public speech by a black man. Now, by all accounts, the white audiences liked what they saw and heard. Asbury admits in his journal that the best way to draw a large congregation was to announce that Hoosier would be preaching that night. So while the content of his sermons probably differed maybe a little bit from those of his fellow preachers, because everybody has their own style, his style, though, was significantly different. And I think that right there, this is the key component of this whole episode, of this whole story. It's his style, his public speaking skills. That is what was unmatched and 100% recognizable. So much so, here we go, that when people from Indiana traveled, they were easily described as sounding like a Hoosier. And this is where it really takes off. Uh, A contemporary description of Hoosier himself provides clues for us to understanding his his really just unmatched success. Mm -hmm. Um, great labor and much endurance, this document says. He also possessed a a most musical voice, which he could modulate with the skill of a master and use with the most complete success and the persuasive parts of a discourse. He was never at a loss in preaching, but was very acceptable wherever he went. And few of the white preachers could equal him in his way. So, I mean, this is just, it confirms everything that we've heard about this guy from beginning to end. And the two drawings of Hoosier that survive confirm this this kind of like portrait of a, of a persuasive yet very, very humble man. One drawing shows Hoosier seated with one hand resting on the Bible and the other hand reaching out to a, to a white man who is listening very intently to his words. The other drawing shows a very kind, unassuming face with a large sympathetic eyes. And I think maybe we can we can post those on social media so everyone can see. Um, but now anyone who's ever heard a, a good sermon from a pastor, a priest, or a really good speaker in general, you know when your heart has been spoken to. You know, some speak and it reaches the ears of the people. Some speak, and it reaches the eyes of the people because they can picture what, you know, the preacher or the speaker is saying, but some speak directly to the heart, and I think that's what causes the listener not only to take in what's being heard, but actually be changed by what they're listening to, and that in itself, that's what Harry Hoosier stood for. Hoosier appealed directly to the heart in an attempt to convince his listeners of their sins, persuade them of what they needed to repent. He was especially famous for his ability to, quote, bring his audience to a climactic pitch Of emotional tension. His years of enslavement, I think, must have enabled him to address the hopes and fears of his black audiences. Um, His experience, I would say, has prepared him in multiple ways to be one of the most successful preachers. He was approachable by anyone. He was authentic um, through and through. He believed in what he was preaching, and you could certainly see him in the scriptures as well, you know, the marginalized. And being uneducated, I don't think that stopped him at all, actually. Uh, You know, many preachers, both black and white, lacked formal education in those days. So Hoosier's illiteracy really didn't slow him down at all. And according to one observer, quote, Harry could remember passages of scripture and quote them accurately. And hymns also, which he had heard, he could repeat or sing. Uh, when a Methodist bishop tried to teach him to read, Hoosier lost the gift of preaching, actually, which I think is a very interesting dichotomy yeah, yeah. The there. Um, so he gave up trying to learn to read uh, altogether. And he explained his talent. He said, I sing by faith, pray by faith, preach by faith, and do everything by faith. So Hoosier relied on his memory a lot, his imagination to produce very descriptive figures of speech, and of course, delivered them with a very impressive, booming voice and and very bold gesture. Um, But it was this kind of speech, convincing, profound, eloquent, a voice able to move mountains, but better yet, hearts that would begin to spread uh, about this preacher. And as, of course, news traveled, sometimes the focus was on the evangelistic aspect of it that no one is, uh, has to perform to earn the love of God. It was a gift. But to some denominations in the Christian church, that was unheard of, even though that's exactly what Scripture says. But for some, the bigger story was that this message came from a new preacher, and this message and his explanation of the message became synonymous with his name. So if you presented the gospel message in the same way as he did. People began to recognize the wording as far different from the frontier. It was the Hoosier way. And eventually that style spread. And if you spoke in that matter, you weren't just a Christian, you were recognized once again as a Hoosier. Hey, you must be from the Hoosier state. You know, and I I, I kind of relate to this a little bit because I remember when my sister lived in California, um, we went out to, to visit her and... We were in line to something broke in her apartment at the time, so my dad and I went out to, to grab something, and we were in this long line. Everyone in California is friendly because the weather is beautiful, and everyone in New York seems to be on edge, right? I mean, it's pretty <laughs> that's the reputation speaking. that we have. Yeah, one hundred percent. So we were actually in line. The line was getting pretty long, and the person behind us, um, you know, started to huff and puff, and then eventually yelled out, "Hey, what's taking so long?" So sure enough, my dad turned around. And he said, "You got to be from New York," and the guy's like, "How the heck did you know?" Yeah, you know, so each state has its own characteristics. And I think, you know, as, as I don't know, is a, maybe it's a far reach from that, that, um, analogy, but I think if you traveled elsewhere out of Indiana, his speaking, his tone, his wording, his verbiage was just so distinct from everybody else that of course you'd be recognized, uh, as a Hoosier. And of course he, he faced racism for sure. And he, he, as he began to show more and more of himself though, and his excellence, people forgot about their own prejudices. And, um, his excellence certainly overpowered their prejudice. And I think after the break, we'll talk some more about those obstacles he overcame and how Indiana embraced his name as their moniker.
0: You know, Phil, there are so many different things I I really enjoyed about this episode, but it makes me think, you know, we have fun with kids in school, we'll say, hey, we're from New York. So we're New Yorkers. If you're from Florida, you're a Floridian. Mm-hmm. You know, my in-laws, my wife, they're from Connecticut. So if you're from Connecticut, what are you? And the answer is a nutmegger. And there's there's great history in those nicknames and those monikers, like you said, you know, that, you know, for instance, in, in Connecticut, one of the earlier spices that were in demand by traders coming here was nutmeg. So if you're listening to us here in the United States, you know, do you know the the meaning and the origin behind, for instance, the Hoosiers? And I think you know, Hoosiers in Indiana, they're it's such they're so synonymous with one another. Right. Yep. You know, because of the university and because, you know, movies have been based around it. But do people actually know the origins? But you you presented this to us in a way of do you know the origin of this nickname? But in reality it had very little to do with the nickname, and you've instead exposed us to this amazingly wonderful and profound life of a person that I'm guessing most people listening to us today were completely unfamiliar with. And that's the beauty 100%. of it. Yep. And there's so many different layers to it. There was racism, there was faith, there was, you know, the ability to tell stories, you know, and, and that part of our history where where histories passed down, you know, by oratory skills. Right. So there's there's so many great levels to this story. Um and I'm 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 excited to hear feedback from people because I think it's going to resonate really well with the
1: with the listeners that we have. I hope so, and I, I think there's like you said, there's just so many facets to this story. I mean, coming from the Appalachian frontier, the term "hoosier" was really slang for people who were uneducated. So you know, uneducated that they would follow a black minister. You know, th- mm-hmm. there's that like level of racism that it's hard for us to understand. But he took it, and it it, it almost like encouraged him. Mm-hmm. And he, he was he really there's no record showing that he was personally impacted by it meaning that he was slowed down by it and in fact i think it it's what really uh motivated him because he knew that that racism in itself was a sin of the heart you know what i mean so he wanted to speak to people uh get him to repent and it really his skin color eventually never mattered mm. because he was so good uh at what he did um later that term hoosier though migrated west from virginia and the carolinas to tennessee then to the north to of course Indiana came to mean simply someone who was unrefined or ignorant, even. However, as the number of Methodists in Indiana grew, and his message grew, especially then in those southern states, the term finally found its home. And in the end, those racial connotations were gradually stripped away, and really lost to history. Um, The story was no longer about a black preacher, it was about a preacher. Yeah, you know, And, and it takes somebody who kind of takes these obstacles that are in his way. He couldn't read. He tried to become a reader and it, it affected his preaching. And he said, no, I, I, I'm I, going to do what I know. I'm going to do what I'm, I'm gifted to do. And none of these things are going to stop me. And it, it really, I mean, so awe-inspiring. Um, And of course, the people of Indiana were so moved by Harry Hoosier. The, stole, the story, of course, no longer became about skin color. It was about how passionate of a man Hoosier was, how many lives he changed, how much he loved Jesus and how much he loved preaching his message. And More than most ministers of his age, Harry Hoosier was able to transcend those racial barriers when he preached. And I think that the people of Indiana shook off those negative connotations and really wore Hoosier with pride. And without even knowing it, Indiana has preserved Harry Hoosier's name, his legacy, and I think it is one that does him much honor. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horinder. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.